Grab your Bibles and go back with me to uh, Exodus chapter 5, and we will continue our look at the life of Moses, although we're going to bog down just for one night, which is tonight. <clears throat> um, uh, I want to I take you back to um, verses 22 and 23 of, of Exodus 5, which I'll explain in just a minute, but... <clears throat> um, Gang, tonight I fear that I am about to abuse you. Um, by that I mean I'm about to do something that is um, autobiographical as opposed to having a text, teaching the text, um, which is our, the normal fare around here at Grace Advantage, I think as you know. I am... Um, I'm painfully aware that, uh, that God is very concerned that his people be properly fed. Um, if you were to um, take a look at chapters like Ezekiel 20, 34 and Jeremiah 23, you will see his great uh, in, intention of having his people well shepherded. So, and and I, I, I live with that um, very seriously um <clears throat> his great interest is his people um that they be properly cared for his interest um is not grace of Anne. his interest is not jimmy young or his story um he is Interested in Gracie Van in so far as she is a conduit, a channel through which he pours his blessing out to his people. To the degree that Gracie Van does that, Gracie Van enjoys his smile because his concern is his people that they be that they hear from him. And Jesus said on one occasion that um, he'll get the rocks to, to cry out uh, if necessary. So his main interest is not me. It's not this church. His main interest is you, his people, that you be tended um, by good shepherds. So that's kind of a little that's that's why i'm i'm um i i'm afraid that that uh I, I hope to see that that will take place tonight um i am about to use our time together this one wednesday night to tell you a story about me and i do that with a as i hopefully you hear with a fair degree of fear and trepidation in my voice as I uh, or in in my approach here tonight gang um now let me as for my motive why I'm doing this um tonight I want to teach you a principle a principle um that per se the principle is not found in the scripture no no the, the, the principle itself is articulated where I first heard it, which was A.W. Tozer. That principle is not found in here, but the content of the principle 
is. And I'll tell you about that principle in just a minute. But I, um, I want to first go back to where we left off last week, which was really in uh, Moses, excuse me, in Exodus uh, 5. And I, I showed to you, uh, it was right after Moses' first audience with Pharaoh, which didn't go so good. Actually, it went rather horribly. And you recall after verse 3, uh, uh, Pharaoh commands that the life of the Israel nation be made harder, um, <clears throat> pardon me, um, by withdrawing their supply of straw. So they have to gather their straw. Together. And as a result of that, the people of Israel get real mad at Moses. You know, say some real ugly things to him. And Moses reacts uh, down here in 22 and 23. Oh, Lord, why have you done evil? Do you see that, ladies and gentlemen? Moses is so oppressed in this particular circumstance that he accuses God of doing evil. And then he says, well, you know, why did I ever come? Why did I ever do this? He wants to quit. Um, gang, there's another similar instance in another one of my heroes by the name of Jeremiah. You might know the chapter. It's Jeremiah 20. If you'd like to take a look at it later, <clears throat> I would certainly eagerly encourage you to do so. But Jeremiah, as the chapter opens, gets taken, uh, gets arrested <clears throat> and beaten by a guy by the name of Pasher, P-A-S-S-H-U-R. He gets beaten. And, um... Then I think it's about verse six or it could be about verse eight that um, Jeremiah says, <clears throat> you have deceived me and I have been deceived. Boy, if you're going to get deceived by somebody, you get deceived by God, you really got deceived. And he says, I've had enough of this. You know, he just got beat up. I've had enough of this and I quit. What I'm saying to you, ladies and gentlemen, is Jeremiah's circumstance is very similar to what you see here with Moses. Um, they they, they launched this, this ministry because they're going to do great things for God. And at least initially, it doesn't go well. And, um, and, and by the way, I would say again that the principle that I'm about to articulate that I got from A.W. Tozer, I would say to you that it's even found to be true about Jesus. Not in the same way of Moses and Jeremiah, but you, you know this statement. Um, uh, for it was fitting that he, God the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation, Jesus, perfect, through suffering. It seemed fitting to God to make the God-sent Savior, the founder of the religion that we are a part of, it made him, I mean, to make him ready for that, the thing that he used was suffering. <clears throat> um, guys, it is serious to charge God with evil. 
serious for a man to accuse God of lying to him. But that's where these two men were. They'd had it up to here. Um, you know, there's a lot of men. Look, Jonah, I think you may recall, Jonah prays to die. So does Job. I don't want to go through this anymore. I've, I've had it. You lied to me. Or, why did you do this evil? And I've had it. You shouldn't have ever sent me. Now, that's where we stopped last week. And I, I said to you, why, why is Moses in that? And I offered two little uh, possible suggestions. Of course, the pursuit of humility in Moses. And secondly, um, that passage in 2 Corinthians 12, where he says, Paul, no, I'm not going to take your throne away because I want you to know that my grace is sufficient for you. Okay. <clears throat> um, so now I want to tell you about the principle. Basically, what I want to do is add a third reason as to why. I, I gave you two last week, humility and my grace is sufficient. Tonight, I want to add a third. And it's this principle that I first found from A.W. Tozer. And, and I'm telling you, if you've got a pen in your hand, you might want to write this down. Um, this quote... Um, has allowed me to sleep on many a night. Here's the quote and the principle which I want to tell you about tonight. Rarely does God use a man significantly until he hurts him deeply. Rarely does God use a man significantly until he hurts him deeply. And of course, I'm just giving you two examples. Actually, three. Moses, Jeremiah, and even Jesus. Now, tonight, my illustration of that principle is taken from my own story. And um, let me hasten to, to add this. I, I am not saying in any way that God has used me significantly. Uh, like Moses or Jeremiah. But I can tell you this. He has hurt me deeply. <laughs> now, what I'm trying to do is to teach this principle that I see fleshed out in Moses and in Jeremiah and even in that Hebrews 2 passage about Jesus. Rarely does God use a man significantly until he hurts him deeply. Most of you know that um, I spent the first 10, my, my family, uh, Susie and I spent the first 10 years of our ministry in Ocala, Florida. Susie and I like to say that it was nine and a half of the best years of our lives, but unfortunately we stayed 10 years. Because the last six months um, almost killed us. And I, and I don't think that's much hyperbole. They almost killed us. I'm going to tell you just one little slice of a, a, a kind of a subset of this giant eruption that took place in our lives. I, and and my, 
my goal is to try to illustrate the principle. Rarely does God use a man significantly until he hurts him deeply. And so in that six months that almost killed us, I'm going to give you the narrowest piece of the pie. It's the only part of the story that I thought I could tell in 15, 20 minutes. So let me tell you this little, about this little slice of the pie. We moved to Ocala in June of 1975. Susie was seven months pregnant with our first child, Gracie. We planted a church there. It was a church plan, a church start. And by God's grace, um, that church flourished. Um, we had a youth program called the Thursday Nighter that was just the, the hottest thing in town. We were having 275 kids uh, every Thursday night in the summer. Um, we grew to be the largest church in the city. But that was because all the other churches were splitting. Um, Central Baptist split, Highlands Baptist split, and, and we, those people were kind of coming from the splits. Um, and, uh, somewhere around, don't hold me to these dates, but somewhere around 1983, so that's eight years, a couple began to uh, visit at the church of which I was the pastor. Their name was Bill and Jenny Barr. That is their real name. Um, and I hope one day he hears this. Um, uh, but anyway, his name was Bill, and they had a son whose name was Billy. And over the next few months, as he visited at Grace, uh, Grace Press, the name of the church is Grace Press down there, um, <clears throat> he convinced Susie and I that he was fabulously wealthy. He told us stories <clears throat> about how he worked for Wellington Mara. Mara, you know who that is? Wellington Mara owned the New York Giants. And his family still does. I think he's dead now, but he worked for Wellington Mara and he would, trans he would, uh, he would um, transport money, cash money, in a, um, in a briefcase from New York to the Credit Suisse Bank in, in Switzerland and the, the briefcase was clasped to his wrist with handcuffs. And he would ferry money over and back from New York to Credit Suisse and back. <clears throat> he also told us that he sang at a Billy Graham crusade with Beverly Shea. Is that his name, Beverly Shea? Yeah, okay. Um, uh, he also went on to tell us that he had offshore uh, oil drilling uh, rigs off the coast of, it, it, it was either Brazil or Argentina, I can't, it was South America someplace, because he told us that he was paying his underwater welders $750 an hour uh, to, do their, to do their job. So um, we began to believe that this man was fabulously wealthy. So um, one day he calls and says, he, or he schedules a lunch with me. He, um, he picks me up at the church and we go out to, um, uh, I guess it was the, the west side of uh, Ocala. And he shows me a piece of land that he's about to buy. <clears throat> um, it was a huge piece. I had 700 acres, 300 acres, 1,200. I don't remember. It was a huge piece of land that he was about to buy. Um, and uh, then he, we went down the street to the little pizza place and had lunch. And um, there in this little pizza place, they had these paper placemats <clears throat> and he took his, his uh, placemat turned it over and wrote on it something and then he slid it across the table to me 
and he said, I want to give you, and on the back of that placemat, he said, $1 million cash and 70 acres off of that piece of land that I'm about to buy. Well, folks, at that point, I, I think I pretty much lost my mind. Um, in, in terms of my own sense of self-importance. Uh, gang, um, uh, there was no immorality. There was no doctrinal issues. But the eruption began at the church. Um, as I said, no, no immorality, no, no doctrinal issues. It was just pure old-fashioned self-importance, pride. Uh, and the problems came in bunches. We would have session meetings, ladies and gentlemen, we would have session meetings that started at 6 p.m. and we would get through at 2 a.m. Sitting in a room, fighting. My wife will tell you, I had diarrhea three days in fr before it and three days after it. It was awful um and 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 you know you might you might not agree with this but i'm not a, i'm not a fighter i'm a lover i love people and i don't like to fight well i was fighting and um we had nine elders five of them supported me four of them did not um about that time that summer of um 84 Yes, the summer of 84. Uh, we went on a vacation. Uh, I had three small girls, and we took our family to Washington, D.C. to enjoy a vacation. When I got back to Ocala, <laughs> I, I've never been through a period like this. I think we got back on like the 10th of August or something, and by the 12th of August. I mean, there was bloodletting. I mean, that's overstated, but I mean, it was just fighting. <clears throat> Bill Barr, the fabulously wealthy man that worked for Wellington Mara, or at least at one time did, either I told him, I don't know how he found out, maybe I told him, I, I don't remember at this point, <clears throat> but he steps in and he wants to help um, he, unbeknownst to me, was building, or at least said he was going to build, a, an enormous fitness center in Ocala, and he wanted me to run it. He was going to give me a job of running this fitness center. And so, you know, we, we thought about it. I mean, we were just, I mean, reeling, reeling. Uh, Susie and I and these three little small girls that we had. Uh, they weren't. They didn't know anything was going on. But um, um, to, to tell you just how disruptive this whole situation had gotten, um, one night <clears throat> uh, in our backyard, 400 people showed up in our backyard. They were led by a United States congressman who was a Republican who had, uh, I mean, he served in Congress for like 13 years, I think. Um, they, they showed up in our backyard um, singing we just called to say we love you and so they're standing out in my backyard 
And my secretary was there. Her name was Faith Session. She was 20 years older than I was, and I think she could beat me up. But, um, <laughs> but uh, when, when she walked me over to the slide door between the back of the house and the backyard, and those 400 people were out in my backyard singing, and I collapsed. I wasn't crying. I was wailing. So Bill Barr had offered us this job, and so one night he schedules an appointment to come to our house to show us the plans for this fitness center. Uh, our girls were in bed. We sit at our kitchen table. Susie's there. And he rolls out these blueprints for this fitness center that he wants to build. It, it's, it's just mind-blowing what he wanted to build. But while he is there, he also tells us that um, he wants to build us a house. He's going to build a fitness center. He's going to build us a house, our own house. And we had a house. It was a small place, but he was going to build us a big place. And when he left that night, my wife and I walked down the little hall in our house and we said to one another, we said, well, at least I think he's real. Um, our whole lives were turning upside down. And so we were trying to sort all of this out. <clears throat> and over the nine years that we had been there, we had saved $2,600. It was an education fund for our three girls. I had $2,600 to my name. I had a job. I mean, I had a, a steady income. But in terms of money saved, we had $2,600. That was it. And I don't, I don't know how, I mean, I guess I told Bill Barr about that, but he offered to take my $2,600 and invest it offshore in Panama at an interest rate of 14%. And um, at that point, you know, we thought it was, we were convinced he was real. And so I drove out to his house one night and I gave him 26 $100 bills. Closed out the account and took my money and gave it to Bill Barr. Things at the church got worse. Jimmy Latimer calls me and offers me a job. And really, y'all, we believed that we were going to spend our, our whole lives in Ocala, Florida. We loved Ocala, uh, at least the first nine and a half years. Um, we, we saw ourselves as dying there. I mean, I, I planted the church and I was going to die with it. Jimmy uh, offered me a job about in October, I think, of 84. And, um, and I turned him down. <clears throat> but then um, things just continued to fly apart and I guess the biggest part of the whole nightmare for me is that I I couldn't sleep I lost my ability to sleep which I'd never had trouble before <clears throat> so I called him back in early December of 1984 Jimmy Latimer that is and I said I want the job um, they flew us up here our whole family uh, we flew out of Tampa, I never will forget, and we flew to Memphis, and uh, 
it, it snowed while we were here. It was in January. And uh, while we were there, we got a phone call from the five elders that, that liked me <clears throat> um, and said, please don't take that job. We'll do anything that you say, but don't take that job. Come back and we'll, we'll handle this. And guys, um, I just couldn't. I was exhausted, emptied, um, battered. Um, <clears throat> when Bill Barr heard that we... Um, had taken the job. <clears throat> he was very excited because he heard that Stephen Olford was in Memphis and actually in the church where I was going to go to work. And he at least told us that he knew Stephen Olford and, and everything was going to be great. So go on up there, uh, go to Memphis and buy any house you want. And I will finance it interest-free. But you know what that does to your ability to buy a house if you don't have to pay any interest on it. So fortunately, my wife did the looking and she found a, a reasonable house. It was over on Aniston Cove. Some of you have been in that house. Um, so um, <clears throat> the Youngs head to Memphis. Now, guys... I don't know what my poor wife was thinking about her husband at that moment, but um, first of all, we left Memphis, we left Ocala in a borrowed van. We had a house in Ocala, Florida that was financed by the, through the bank. It was not sold. It wasn't even on the market. We didn't have a renter. We walked out, we packed a car and a van full of stuff, locked the door, and we had no idea what was going to happen to it. At that moment, we had no idea. We had certain friends that were, uh, said, okay, we'll take care of it. You just go on. And so we met some friends of ours at a Burger King on the way out, right there on that Highway 27 where he was going to give us 70 acres. And um, we said goodbye to them in tears, got in the van. And I remember Gracie was sitting in the front seat with me. I was driving. Susie was driving our little Toyota station wagon and um gracie looked at her me and she said daddy this is a great adventure and um we we headed to memphis we moved in with Susie's parents um <clears throat> and we had a dog a dog that was crazy she ultimately ran away and we were glad <laughs> um why my in-laws allowed that i i'll never know this dog was I mean, ate through a wall to get away from us. But anyway. <clears throat> so here we are uh, in Ocala now, living with Susie's parents, trying to find a house. And I started work on March the 1st of 1985. Five days later, or four days later, some friends had come from Ocala to visit us. And we took them downtown uh, to eat at the butcher shop or butcher block. You know, it's been closed for a while, but... That's where we went. And we were just driving around showing in Memphis. And uh, I was coming up Beale Street right there at front, right behind the Orpheum. And a man ran a, headlight, a, a stoplight and we had a car wreck. 
a big car wreck. And that night, I ended up in the hospital having emergency surgery on this eye. I still have wires around this eye. And every time I go to the dentist, they take pictures and they go, oh, you got what? I said, well, that's, it's there. But they're still there. Because the whole orbit of my eye had, had been crushed. So I ended up having plastic surgery that night. Um, we find a house and we tell the realtor we'll be paying cash. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the owners of the house that we bought were getting a divorce and um, they wanted out of the house. So we moved into that house. They moved out, we moved in. Before we closed, assured by Bill Barr that he would wire us the money. Only days before the closing. By the way, I, I neglected to tell you this part. When I went out to his house that night and gave him the $2,600, he gave me this. You can come read it. He's, um, uh, these funds are guaranteed by William C. Barr uh, personally and will be delivered by him upon notice, the full principal and interest included. I fell on to that. Um, a few days before the closing, Bill Barr disappears. He goes rogue. He won't take my phone calls. And we have a closing on a house for which we have no money. And we still own a house in Florida that we're still paying a mortgage payment on. And I've got wires in my eyes. And my family, I walked into the bedroom one night where Gracie and Megan were sleeping and and um, Gracie said to me, Daddy, I could still cry about this. Daddy, the, is, the adventure is over. And boy, was it ever. We get a 90-day bridge loan that was co-signed my central church. Realizing now that the interest-free loan was a hoax, I began to call him asking him to send us our $2,600. I, I cannot tell you the number of stories that he told me about a man, a preacher had a car accident and I've used your money to help him out in his hospital bills. And I said, well, write me a check out of all your money. Um, we must have had 15 conversations about getting this $2,600 back. We never got it back. What kind of man takes the $2,600 from a young couple, a pastor, with three small girls? Who does that? And finally, after all the phone calls to try to get our money back, we finally got frightened. We began to think that the guy was maybe mixed up with the mafia. 
And finally I said, I don't think I said it to him, I said it to Susie. Let him keep it. And it was right about then that I found a quote from A.W. Tozer that said, Rarely does God use a man significantly until he hurts him deeply. Guys, I don't know how long this process took. I could guess it was maybe 18 months, 14 months, a year. It was over a year. But during that year, God tore me apart. And he put me back together, really through Romans 5, 6, and 7. When I went to work for Central Church, I had an office that wasn't an office. In fact, if you go over there right now, it is a broom closet. I, I saw it three or four years ago. We went over there to take some videos. My office was a broom closet. It was up on the third floor and nobody bothered me. And it was me and God with Romans 5, 6, and 7. And I remember in November of that year, it was the first time I could look at Susie and say, I think I'm going to make it. But that, ladies and gentlemen, is what Moses is experiencing. Far worse. So much so that he would accuse God of evil. I never did that. I told him I wanted to die. But I never did that, and I never accused him of lying. But I can tell you this, ladies and gentlemen. Moses is now ready to face Pharaoh all over again. And he's prepared now in a way that he was never prepared before that. But to get there, God had to hurt him. And I cannot tell you, ladies and gentlemen, how grateful I, my wife, and my girls are that he did. Rarely does God ever use any of us for anything until he hurts us deeply. Our Father, would you uh, use your word to remind your people that you are up to good and yet the good is often prefaced with the painful and that uh, you have not forsaken us, left us, 
or thumbed your nose at our, at our, at our pain. But you have authored sets of circumstances to bring us to the place where we are not so full of ourselves, reliant upon your grace, and are utterly reliant upon you to accomplish anything good. Do that for all of us, O oh God. Thank you for having done it to me. We pray, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen.